We have recently seen the rise of financial influencers who may, for example, give investment advice on social media. However, as seen in the GameStop short squeeze or recent cryptocurrency fraud scheme scandals, financial influencers may come with issues such as conflict of interest. This begs the question, is the current policy framework sufficient to protect consumers? Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law and its relationship with society. I'm Juliet. And I'm Rich, and we are your podcast editors. We will platform academics, practitioners, and experts from different backgrounds on this podcast. Felix Flicker is a legal academic focusing on European law. He read law at the undergraduate level at the universities of Maastricht and Glasgow, and at the graduate and postgraduate levels at Brasenose College, Oxford. He has been a lecturer in law at Oxford since 2018 in contract, taught, and EU law. He's part of the Indigo project of the University of Luxembourg, which addresses the impact of digitalization on the implementation of policies in Europe. His research combines a comparative and empirical approach to understand how online platforms function and how consumer redress can be improved, and leading outlets like the European Law Journal and the Oxford University Press have featured his research. He recently published a paper, Regulating Finfluencers, in the Journal of European Consumer and Market Law, which critically analyzes whether the current framework sufficiently protects consumers, which is what we'll be discussing today. So, just to start us off, what are finfluencers? How do you characterize these individuals? And what kind of financial products do they platform? And how would you describe their audience? Well, thank you for the question. I mean, first of all, there is no legal definition of what influencers or finfluencers are. But we have sort of two distinct issues that we need to look at. So the first one is whether there's a commercial activity involved and whether they can be characterized as traders under the national rules implementing the unfair commercial practice directive. Secondly, we need to look at whether they advertise financial products. In case they do advertise financial products, they fall within the markets in financial instruments directive, the MIFID, or the market abuse regulation, the MAR. In terms of characteristics, I mean, that's sort of an interesting one. So, I mean, you have financial influences that have educational content or that also pursue their own financial aims when they promote things on social media. But what they all have in common that they benefit from so-called one-sided parasocial relationships. Now, parasocial relationships are one-sided relationships where one person extends the emotional energy and interest towards the, here in this case, the financial influencer, who is obviously completely unaware of the follower's existence. It's not only common in financial influence, but generally in influencer-follower relationships. And how influencers of influence typically do that is involving the audience in their daily lives. So they will take them along in terms of vlog style about their daily life, from eating out, from traveling. And then suddenly they introduce a financial product, whatever, nudge them into buying their course, etc., in generic content. And that's that's a tactic that is commonly deployed by influencers that they try to create this, this bond by being very personal, addressing the audience in a certain way, taking them along to certain events that are normally reserved only for close friends and family. And that makes it particularly risky when it comes to financial advice because the, the consumer sort of thinks, okay, this is almost treats them like a friend. And these sort of relationships 
lead to higher level of trust, credibility and reliance on the advice of, of that person, which is particularly dangerous in the case of financial influence. In terms of platformization of financial products, that really depends on the influencer. I mean, they uh, advertise a variety of financial products or services, but also that sort of includes high-risk products such as crypto assets, get-rich-quick schemes, all kinds of um, things. So there's really a variety going on. In terms of the target audience, that's also an interesting point that you mentioned. There is some evidence from the UK Financial Conduct Authority on that. I mean, typically it's young adults that are interested in these financial topics. And they conducted a study on financial literacy, which I found particularly striking. Because in that study, 38% of respondents could not list a single reason why they invested in their top three investment positions, which I found absolutely shocking. And furthermore, in that study, they, they revealed that 78% um, of respondents claim that they have a firm reliance on gut instincts and rule of thumb when they invest. So that's something that I found a, a, a very fascinating and very toxic also combination. So it sounds like this particular area is potentially a pretty risky one for consumers to get into. So you set out four main categories of business strategies for financial influencers in your paper. So sharing investment advice and strategies, market manipulation, the promotion of financial services or products, and advertising third-party products. So could you share a bit more about what these activities may look like? What are the potential revenue sources for financial influencers in these categories? And whether there are any conflicts of interest that we can flag out at this stage already? Okay, thank you for that, that question. Now, I mean, let me first of all look into what these categories actually are. So the first category that you just mentioned that I included in my paper is sharing investment advice and strategies. I mean, here the Finfluencers share well-intentioned investment strategies and decisions on social media, and the audience sort of benefits from free content, and the Finfluencer then generates revenue through the clicks, for example, YouTube AdSense, TikTok Creator Fund, etc., the second one also includes investment strategies and advice, but here we have a bit of a market manipulation element because the Finfluencer has not good intentions but bad intentions, for example, promoting an asset for their personal gain. So, I mean, we've seen meme stock trading, etc. So that sort of falls into the second category. The third category is where Finfluencers promote their own service or product. I mean, there I've seen a variety of, of services and products from coaching sessions, online courses, books. Some influencers even have their own investment funds that they promote. And obviously then different rules um, apply depending on the product. Now, finally, the fourth category, advertising third-party products, that is also very common. Here, influencers collaborate with third parties such as broker platforms, etc., where they use affiliate links, giveaways, and referrals to create revenue. In terms of revenue, what I found interesting, I mean, obviously, let's say the first category, they only create revenue through clicks. The second one through clicks, but also the personal gains from, from holding the assets. The third one, obviously, also, again, clicks, but also the sale of coaching sessions or the fees they generate from the investment fund. The fourth one is more classical, what generally influencers do. I mean, they, they advertise third-party products. It's a commission-based system where they get revenue through affiliate links, etc. But what they all have in common is that social media platforms benefit in any case through the web traffic. That's something that I find found quite interesting. So whether it's well-intentioned or, 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 or their bad intentions, the, the social media platforms 
benefit in any case. In terms of conflict on interest, I would say yes. I mean, there are certainly conflict of interests involved. I would say that in all of the categories, there is a conflict of interest because either they advertise their own product or their own social media channel. So that could be, for example, that it's just clickbait. So all kinds of conflict of interest. In terms of harms, it could be that consumers lose the entire invested capital in high-risk investments. But there's also non-financial harm. I mean, that's another thing that financial conduct authorities stress, such as psychological detriment or adverse effects on well-being. And exactly, and that's sort of what makes this uh, field particularly challenging. Yeah. So from what you shared, it seems quite clear that there does seem to be a need for regulation in this area. So How would you characterize the key conflicts or tensions when we're deciding how to regulate this area, what to regulate? So, I mean, there are a number of issues that are really important. So, I mean, the first first issue is ensuring compliance with the existing rules. So, I mean, I already pointed out some of the instruments that apply to financial influencers, whether it's the Unfair Commercial Practice Directive, which is a maximum harmonization instrument from the EU, or the MIFID II Directive, or the Market Abuse Regulation, I mean, they all set a maximum standard that member states then need to enforce. But here's sort of the issue is that the member states then enforce it. I mean, here we don't have reliable data on how actively member states or now third countries like the UK police these rules. And the problem is that, I mean, even if they're correctly enforced on a national level, the thing that I point out in my paper is that it's really a global issue because there are no boundaries in, in, in the situation. I mean, the best example is the, the one coin fraud that occurred in the UK. I mean, here, a Bulgarian national came to the UK to advertise a cryptocurrency, which turned out to be a fraud scheme. She then escaped to Dubai and then uh, now is on a yacht in international waters. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that sort of shows how difficult it is then to get actually hold of the um, financial influences. So that's the first issue is comp- ensuring compliance with existing rules because we do have a sig- significant cross-border um, element there. The second issue is the vulnerability of consumers. As already pointed out, there is a parasocial relationship uh, dynamic between the financial influencer and the consumer. And that is really something that needs to be taken into account because consumers then are particularly vulnerable in this situation. And as we've seen, there are many conflict of interests at stake and mostly consumers do not receive independent advice. So this leads me to my third point, that there is really need for comprehensive regulation because the current framework is obviously not designed for financial influence, but just generally for advertising financial products. So it may not fully address the activities and risks that are associated with financial influence. So I think we've alluded to a few potential ways influencers may be held responsible already. So could you perhaps explain the scope of the Unfair Commercial Practices Directive and the EU Market Abuse Regulation a little bit further? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, first of all, when influencers generally advertise third-party products or their own products, they fall within the Unfair Commercial Practice Directive because they are categorized as traders. So if there's sort of any hidden marketing, they must ensure that they disclose it because otherwise they will be in breach of the rules of the directive. They can also, under directive, for example, not claim to be a consumer when they do review, etc. So this is all very clearly regulated. And there's also guidance provided by the regulators. Now, the interesting part is when it comes to financial products because here several instruments kick in. So we have the market abuse regulation, we have the MIFID 
2 instrument and we have the Commission Delegated Regulation 2016-958. What I find interesting with the financial rules is that what you commonly see with financial influencers that they, for example, also have a podcast like this where they have their audience on the show and then they give them investment advice, strategies, recommendations, whatever, and then they, they say, okay, but this is not investment advice. And that's something that I typically see when they say, well, the following is not investment advice. And I mean, it's it's sort of not clear whether that this whether this is a valid defense when you look at just at the text of the rules. But then the ESMA, the European Securities and Markets uh, Authority, issued a guidance on this particular issue and said that claim, claiming something is not an investment advice is not a valid defense. Yeah? So it, an objective standard applies whether it's financial advice or not. So merely including a disclosure, this is not investment advice, when it clearly is investment advice, is not a defense, according to the ESMA guide. So with regards to disclosures, is there a difference in treatment between qualified and non-qualified influencers? Thank you for that one. So yes, we do have a distinction between experts and non-experts. But what is interesting is that the distinction is based on how individuals present themselves. So it is not determined by actual expertise, but by the perception created by the individual. So the definition really hinges on self-presentation as having financial expertise. So if they constantly present themselves as having expertise in a specific field of financial products, they fall within that category and suddenly all kinds of rules apply to them, uh, which they might may not be aware of. So it seems like a great deal of law in this area is done on an EU level. For the benefit of our audience who may not have a familiarity with EU law, could you explain, for example, the difference between regulations and directives? So the market abuse regulation is a regulation, which means that member states do not need to implement it into national law. The same applies to the Commission Delegated Regulation 2016-958, so it is adopted on the EU level and directly applicable. Whereas when we look at the MIFID II directive, here we need to again point out that it's a directive, which means that it needs to be implemented into national law to become effective. So here you need to ensure that the member states has implemented the directive on time and correctly into national law because that is the, the only law that you can then um, rely on. With regards to directives, you also have minimum and maximum harmonization directives. Minimum harmonization such as the e-commerce directive allows member states to adopt stricter rules. When it's a maximum harmonization directive, like the Unfair Commercial Practice Directive, member states have no discretion in implementing it. They have to implement it into national law as it is. With regards to maximum harmonization instruments, you also have some exceptions, not in the case today, where optional provisions are included. So there is a maximum harmonization standard, but it includes certain options. Yeah. So countries on a national level may have some form of discretion over implementing this into their codes of conduct, and it leaves enforcement action to member states and authorities as well. So what do you think about this? Have any countries been particularly strict or lax in interpreting these rules? That's a very, very important point. I mean, as I've already mentioned, I mean, most of the instruments are maximum harmonization, so there is little discretion, but still some discretion. But there's obviously full discretion with regards to how the rules are enforced, how active the enforcement agencies are, what priorities they set, etc. Is guidance by the EU regulator, for example, the ESMA guidance that I pointed out, but obviously the UK has now its own guidance. But again, there are differences in how the rules are policed. There are differences in, sort of, we also have national differences. 
France is a very good example. I mean, they recently adopted their own influencer laws, very hands-on. They even banned some practices. But, I mean, we don't really have data on how member states um, or the platforms police the applicable laws. What do you think about these regulations? So are they well suited to regulate this new phenomenon of influencers? For example, are they caught up to novel financial products like crypto assets? I mean, we have several challenges in the, the current regime and they may not be, I mean, the rules may not be uh, well suited for overseeing influencers. Especially, as you've already pointed out, we have some emerging financial products like crypto assets, etc., and recent crackdowns by regulators also underscore the limitations of existing regulation. As I've mentioned, I mean, it's a global issue. It requires a global um, response. So that is sort of the biggest hurdle is in actually enforcing the rules. There you need to get the platforms um, on board to really crack down on bad actors. In terms of impact of financial influencers, I mean, there's a notable impact on individual investment decisions. Again, coming back to the parasocial relationship aspect, but we also have a bigger dimension. I mean, it's not only the individual consumers, but also the financial markets that could be adversely affected by practices of influencers. For example, we've seen meme stock trading where influencers pushed up the, the stocks of, of small cap equities, particularly in the US, and then suddenly they all went out and, and, and sold them at the right time. And then some companies went bankrupt. Yeah? I mean, Bad Bath & Beyond and other stocks, etc., were involved there. And this is sort of a risk to the financial markets as a whole, not only to the individual consumers. So that's really a, a big issue as well. So I feel that we need to move to more tailored regulations because the it's sort of inadequate of, to just have this generic um, regime for financial influences. So in this particular situation, I would say I think it's arguable as well that social media giants like Facebook, YouTube or Twitter, now X, should play a role in ensuring they don't platform illegal content or even more paternalistically content that has the potential to harm its users. So does the law actually recognize a responsibility on these companies to actively mo monitor their content? That's a very important point. I mean, the responsibility of social media giants is definitely heavily legally regulated. And the question is whether we should even go a step further. So the starting point really is the e-commerce directive that was adopted in the year um, 2000, which significantly harmonized the laws of the EU and also the UK, even though it was only minimum harmonization instruments, but most member states have refrained from going beyond this minimum stuff. In the e-commerce directive or the national rules and implementing, then Article 14 and 15 are really important because it outlines that platforms are under no obligation to generally actively monitor the, the content on the platform. However, it, the provisions state that platforms must remove illegal and harmful content once they become aware of it. And there we have a really important case in the Court of Justice, where the Court of Justice ruled that there is a duty to actively monitor content worldwide in very specific circumstances. For example, platforms must remove or disable access to identical or similar content that was declared illegal by a court. So in in these situations, there can be an active duty to monitor the content of the platform. That was also sort of taken into account in the Digital Services Act in the EU and also in the Online Safety Act 2023 in the UK. So in the DSA now, it states that it, it, it will not impose an active duty to police content, but it requires platforms, again, to take down harmful and illegal content upon knowledge. 
What is new now is that the DSA empowers the European Commission for monitoring and enforcement of, uh, of how the platforms actually apply it. In addition, there is an audit requirement on large platforms. Um, so the large social media platforms have to, um, um, they need to have practices enforced to track how they actually enforce their content moderation policies. And this is then independently audited and the commission can also review how the platforms are actually doing it. In the UK, I mean, we now have the Online Safety Act 2023. It creates a new duty of care for online platforms, requiring them to take action against illegal or legal but harmful content from their users. We also have the Audiovisual Media Service Directive, which includes specific rules for, for the platforms. For example, the disclosure of commercial communication and safeguards, etc., must be ensured. So there is really a wealth of regulation in this field as well. And social media platforms play a very active role in ensuring compliance with applicable rules. So we've discussed what kind of rules govern social media giants, but what self-imposed guidelines do social media platforms follow, if any, with regards to the issue of influencers specifically? That leads me to another part of my paper where I went further than just examining the rules on the EU or UK and, and, and other national levels. Here I looked at how the social media platforms actually regulated it. So I looked at five social media platforms and how they regulate it. And what I quickly realized is that there's a lot of self-regulatory measures in place by the platforms that address issues of financial influence. So they all have a code of conduct, content standards, best practices that are very developed. They all include a disclosure requirement. So, for example, that hidden advertising must be labeled accordingly. They have very specific guidance on financial products, which financial products can be offered and which not, how it needs to be labeled, etc. They also provide some advice on national rules that apply. So it's very, very detailed by the platforms. But my research also revealed that the platforms went beyond their legal duties and that has not only created positive effects, but also some negative effects because it's banned products that are, for example, legal or it banned advertisement of financial products in certain jurisdictions, even though this jurisdiction has no rules in place to ban financial advice online. So that also highlights the, the power platforms have. So, I mean, they can also deplatform legal content with their code of conduct. And what is your view on the regulatory mechanisms we have for social media platforms with regards to this particular issue? So do you think they are sufficient and how do you see them moving forward to tackle this particular issue? So first of all, it's a good sign that platforms recognize the need to regulate these activities, that they provide guidance, code of conduct, etc. I think that's a good thing. But again, Coming back to my previous point, I think that some platforms that went beyond the legal standards and gold-plated applicable rules, that that's not necessarily always a good thing. For example, one platform that I examined outright banned financial content in several smaller EU member states, such as Luxembourg, presumably because they did not want to scrutinize the applicable rules. And this is obviously an issue because it undermines the work of legitimate financial influencers that want to put out educational content to their viewers. And then in smaller EU jurisdictions, the content is then not available. So um, I think that's also something that, that should be addressed because that also undermines 
legitimate business interests of financial influencers. Actually, that's, I think that's an interesting distinction. So how do you distinguish between legitimate financial influencers and illegitimate financial influencers? So what factors would you consider in that question? I mean, you have a lot of financial influencers that generally try to increase the low levels of financial literacy, right? I mean, that's the UK Financial Conduct Authority that we discussed earlier in the podcast today, that the levels of financial literacy are low in the population and some legitimate financial influencers try to increase it. In terms of characteristics, I mean, typically, I would say that, first of all, it's probably free content. I mean, they're not going to try to sell you their investment course or book. And then it's just generally educational. It's nothing too risky, nothing too flashy. But that's probably not what people are looking for. I mean, that's another observation that the study has revealed. I mean, it's probably, again, the younger adults who have rules of thumb and gut instinct. And there are certain financial influences with bad intentions that tailor to these people that say, okay, it's very easy to, to get rich. You just have to follow these three steps, these rules of thumb. Just follow your gut instinct and, and, and uh, it will work out uh, eventually. Um, but the legitimate ones obviously probably try to include more of sort of the, the boring content, the stats, the literature and, and, and all of that. And the question is whether people want to, to hear that. So that's probably the distinction. But again, there is no legal distinction. The rules apply um, equally to all financial influencers, regardless of their intentions. So outside of platforms and influencers, uh, in the particular situation of influencers that advertise a third-party financial product, what do you think the legal response to advertisers should be, if, if any? So, I mean, advertisers are held accountable under the Unfair Commercial Practice Directive as well. And there can be joint liability in case financial influencers break applicable rules. I mean, there we have seen several cases also with regards to normal influencers where the Advertising and Standards Authority took action against both the influencer and the brand. But in my view, the rules are not going far enough because, I mean, it's not enough if we just have joint liability. In my view, advertisers should also provide legal advice to financial influencers or influencers because they are the ones that know the product best. I mean, they know how the product is regulated. They know whether it's a restricted product, whether certain risk disclosures apply. Advertisers know the product best. So in my view, the law should um, place a positive duty on, on advertisers to inform and give legal advice to financial influencers, to ensure that they have the adequate guidance, to ensure compliance with all legal requirements that apply. All right, just one last general question would be, how do you see the legal landscape developing in response to this issue? I mean, first of all, I think that, again, the role and liability of advertisers is a really important issue. I mean, both the law and platforms extend the liability to advertisers, but again, I feel the regime is not going far enough. Advertisers should be under an obligation to provide legal advice because they know the product best. If we do that, at least in the EU, we should have an EU-wide approach. Otherwise, we risk fragmentation. So fragmentation in the EU internal market can take various forms. So, for example, when you have a minimum harmonization instrument, that means you have a minimum standards, but then you maybe have diverging national standards. So some member states might go beyond the standard of the directive and then you have a fragmented market because if you want to then offer your service or product in another market, you need to you need to be aware and comply with a stricter standard than in your home jurisdiction. So that's why we have a trend in the EU to adopt either maximum harmonization instruments 
or regulations in most fields nowadays because we want to sort of set the maximum standard. Some have argued, such as Stephen Weatherill, that it undermines the competition aspect. So he argues that competition between different systems is good because then we have experimentation as well, whether different different rules might have advantages. So that's sort of the downside of having the maximum harmonization instruments because then you have less experimentation and choice. Which leads me to my second point is the French influencer law of 9th of June 2023, which is a national effort to combat bad faith conduct of influencers. Here the law includes a joint responsibility for damages depending on the mandatory written agreement between the influencer of influencer and the advertiser. The law also bans certain financial products, which I find interesting. And another thing is that advertisers must have a representation within the EU. So if you're an advertiser, you must have a representation, not within France, but generally within the EU, to be able to um, advertise your products on social media. Now, the disadvantage is that it fragments the internal market, because otherwise we have um, 27 plus the UK uh, outside of the, the EU, different laws that apply to financial influencers or generally influencers, and that fragments the digital single market. The French law therefore might even break EU law that's currently being investigated. And again, the law, as I've pointed out before, does not resolve the enforcement issue because influencers and advertisers might be abroad and that will not resolve the issue. We truly need a global response, as I've pointed out, for example, with the OneCoin scandal that we've seen. So that's that's something that we definitely need to consider. Another point is, unfortunately, Brexit. So almost all the rules that we discussed today, the EU rules, the directives, the regulations, are retained law. So that means they're still applicable in the UK, except one amendment to the Unfair Commercial Practice Directive that was not adopted in the UK. What is unclear is what's next. I mean, we've seen the online safety bill 2023, but we do not know whether the UK decides, for example, to scrap some of the applicable EU rules in the coming years and diverge from the EU standard. My hunch is that we will still see significant influence from the EU, I mean the so-called Brussels effect, simply because otherwise it fragments the internet and will make it harder for content creators to share their work online. Another point that is really important is the Digital Services Act in the UK. The DSA really is a transparency machine, as some have labeled it, because platforms have to submit every six months a report describing their content moderation activities in the EU. And the first reports are already in, and there is so much wealth of information in them. Um, so that's uh, the, the, the transparency requirement under Article 42 of the DSA. That's going to be a huge development in the coming months and years. And um, it will be exciting to see how the Commission will, will step in and ensure that um, platforms comply with the DSA. One more point that I find extremely important is the assessment of Finfluencer and their impact on the financial stability. As I've already discussed, I mean, their influence on capital markets is, is significant, especially when there is sort of a fraudulent element. I mean, the meme stock point that we've discussed earlier or other investment trends, that's definitely concerning. And the U.S. Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, the Fed, and the European Securities and Markets Authority, the ESMA, have already warned about the potential harm to capital market stability in 2021 and 2022. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, short SEC, already charged eight financial influencers for their role 
in promoting a stock manipulation scheme, a so-called pump and dump scheme on social media platforms. And the eight financial influencers ultimately earned fraudulent profits of approximately 100 million um, US dollar from this um, stock manipulation tactic. So again, this is a reminder of the potential dangers posed by unscrupulous financial influences and the need for greater regulatory oversight. So again, my last point is that we should review the impact on the financial stability. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Uh, we really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>